and welcome to Snescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo Library, three games at a time. We play them briefly, judge them harshly, and rank them, and we are about to put 100 games on the list. I'm Steampunk Link. I am Emmy Zero. And th- this is very exciting, folks. This is a, a big milestone for us. It We're going to be putting the last two games on the list, at least for now, that will uh, bring us up to 100. Mm-hmm. And then I think after this, we're going to have like a, a special. We're going to bring some guests on, and we're just going to we're going to reminisce. We're going to talk about these first hundred games, and then after that, it's uh, pretty much back to normal. We'll we'll keep yeah. going, you know. But but I, I'm excited about this. Are you excited? I am. I I am so excited. Uh, I think it's it's awesome that we've made it to a hundred games, or will have by the end of this episode. I'm also really excited just to talk about these games, and uh, I think the special is going to be great. Uh, I'm really looking forward to recording that and kind of taking a look back at all of the stuff we've seen already and kind of where we're at with Super Nintendo. Yeah, this is this is all really good. I'm I'm super super excited about it all. Yeah, me too. I am really excited. My my hair is standing on end. I I didn't even know that happened when you got excited, but There you go. It does. Anyway, I'm sure this will be fine. This is going to be great. I am super excited to be talking about this. At least half of the games that we're going to cover today are amazing games. That's right. At <laughs> least half of them are incredible. We are only talking about two games today. That is because we're trying to take the list up to 100. And just like the price is right, we don't want to go over. This is our 99th and 100th game to be added to the list. And what do we have today? Well, today we have got Cubert 3 and Space Megaforce. I'm very much looking forward to uh, to talking about these games. And uh, what do you say? What do you say? We just jump right in. Yeah, like a certain strange, armless, giant-nosed video game protagonist will just yeah. We're just gonna jump right in in one of two directions and uh, talk about some Cubert Cubert Three. I should. Oh say. no! I, oh no! I accidentally jumped off the side of the level. Oh no! Uh... Thud. Yeah, before we talk about Cubert 3, I guess maybe we ought to talk about Cubert? We need to talk about Cubert. Somebody we- needs to talk about Cubert. It might as well be us. We need to have a serious conversation about Cubert, okay? Cubert has the coronavirus. No, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> it's okay. He's self-isolating. It's fine. No, no one's really been around him for the past couple decades. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. So Cubert, the original Cubert came out in 1982. So we're, we're really going back there with this one. We're talking about a classic arcade game from the first sort of golden era of the arcades. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a very popular game. Cubert. It, it was, uh, this was developed by a trio of folks over at Gottlieb, uh, who are probably best known for their pinball machines. Those three creators were Warren Davis, who was the main programmer of the game, Jeff Lee, who was the artist who created most of the characters, and sound designer David Thiel. Warren Davis himself actually wrote an article that is still available up on coinop.com, where he sort of talks about the creation of the original Cubert game, and so a lot of this information is taken from that. So he was actually inspired by another programmer over at Gottlieb named Khan Yabumoto, who had uh, programmed this sort of demonstration, I guess, that featured a whole bunch of hexagons on a screen. And when Warren saw it, he kind of felt like they looked like a cube when you looked at them a certain way. He immediately imagined 
programming balls bouncing down these cubes, having one of two choices on where to go, and actually started making that and made this little demo program in which balls randomly bounce down a pyramid of stacked cubes. So he didn't really have a, a grand plan for this, but as he was working on it, a lot of other people saw it and thought it was neat and started contributing, and eventually a game started to take shape. Uh, Jeff Lee, the artist and character creator, uh, immediately started making characters for the game, and Warren settled on the character that we know now as Qbert, the strange guy with no arms whose body mostly consists of, an, like you said, an orange ball with legs and a giant nose. Just to talk about that for just a second, um, I do want to point out that I might be wrong about this, but I feel like Hubert is a pretty distinctive character design, especially for an arcade game in 1983. Uh, I understand why they went with this one, because it, it is just genuinely weird and very attention-getting. Back then, you didn't have drawing programs like you would have later on for basic sprite-based games, so Jeff actually had to, like, pixel by pixel create all these characters and it was the little animations that really made the game pop too like the fact that when Qbert bounced from one tile to another his legs would bend a little bit sort of uh, implying some sort of impact yeah that wasn't necessarily a thing you would have needed in the game back then but he put that in there and it just made the characters that much more animated so as time went on they had the characters they had the pyramid they had the basic physics and everything but they didn't really have a plan as to what the goal of the game was going to be and it was actually uh, Gottlieb's vice president of engineering who came up with the idea of tiles changing color when the characters landed on them and from there the game sort of started falling into place Aside from the gameplay, one of the main things that Kubert is known for is the noises that he makes when he gets knocked out by an enemy. <laughs> yeah. So how this came about was that Thiel was working with a voice synthesizer chip, but quickly realized he wasn't really going to be able to make the chip actually spit out coherent phrases to the player. So instead, he started just kind of throwing together random phonemes to make the gibberish that we know from Qbert today. And kind of helping with that theme was that they'd already created the speech bubbles of Qbert just sort of spouting out random non-alphabetical characters, and they kind of felt like, well, this is a good fit for him. So yeah. Uh, another interesting thing about the sound design with this game is that the original arcade cabinets actually had a pinball mechanism inside of them that would knock against the side of the cabinet from the inside to create a knocking sound whenever Qbert fell off the level. Oh, that's cool. I did not know that at all. That's really interesting. Yeah, neither did I. I did not. I don't think I've ever played with one of the original cabinets, so I didn't know that that nope, was a thing. Neither. They actually wanted it to sound more like a dull thud, and they had this idea of putting some padding on the uh, instrument that was knocking against the cabinet, but they decided that that would just be too labor-intensive production-wise, so that was kind of ruled out. So that is the original Qbert. Warren went on to create a Laserdisc game called Us vs. Them while at Gottlieb. What's that? I don't know. I didn't have time to fall down that rabbit hole, I'm afraid. Maybe someday. He moved on to Williams Entertainment to work on Joust 2 and helped develop the video digitization system that would end up being used in a lot of Williams Midway games like Mortal Kombat and NBA Jam. Jeff Lee, the artist, also worked on Us vs. Them, as well as Mad Planets with the aforementioned Khan Yabumoto. And he's done art for trading cards, comics, and children's books, so the guy's been getting work. He's also the only one of the original trio who actually worked on Qbert 3 directly. 
And finally, we got uh, David Thiel, the audio guy. He's got audio credits on a few other games. I actually didn't find quite as much information about what he's been up to. One of his most recent games was way back in 1990 with Disney's DuckTales, The Quest for Gold. Oh, okay. Yeah, which was actually a computer game. It's not the DuckTales game that came out on the NES. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, you know, he was working on a big license, so good for him. Got a few other non-audio credits, or not audio specific anyway. He's listed as a staff member, surprisingly, on the 1992 arcade fighting game Time Killers, of all things. I don't exactly know what his role was there. I did not expect Time Killers to come up at all in a discussion about Qbert, so uh, <laughs> it's just this whole thing is just full of surprises for me. Nobody ever suspects Time Killers. I certainly didn't expect <laughs> it when I saw it at that Fuddruckers in St. Louis <laughs> so many years ago. Anyway, so there has actually been several Qbert games released between the original and Qbert 3, and none of them are called Qbert 2, so I don't actually know how they came up with Qbert 3 for this one, but uh, there you go. Yeah, are, are we are we supposed to assume that like the Game Boy Qbert that was also made by the same developer as, as Qbert 3 is, is Qbert 2 in this Reckoning? Or is it just like, oh, yeah, there's so many Qbert games. One of them probably counts. Yeah, I mean, I guess since this company specifically worked on that one, that's probably what they were going for. And they were just kind of disregarding all those other Qbert games that came out. But anyway, Qbert himself is a pretty classic character. He's made cameo appearances in Wreck-It Ralph and Futurama and uh, ugh, Pixels. Ugh. Uh, yeah, that's, and, uh, uh, that's too bad. And if we really want to get into the weeds on obscure references, there was a Qbert parody that was made for the PBS mathematics-themed sketch comedy show for kids, Square One TV, in the form of Pauline's Perilous Pyramid. Uh, which is cool, because I actually do remember that from when I was a very small child, and I would watch that show. Yeah, me too. I did not realize that that was a, uh, a Qbert parody, because I did not know what Qbert was. Yeah, it was a slightly more obscure reference than, say, like, Math Man, which was very obviously supposed to be a Pac-Man parody. So. Yeah. That was a weird show. That was a weird show, yeah. Uh, only here on Snescapades can we talk about a Super Nintendo game and end up mentioning Time Killers and Square One TV in the same conversation. That's the Snescapades difference. It is our special skill. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, who actually made Qbert 3, though? So this comes to us courtesy of NTV International, not MTV. They have about eh, half a dozen games to their credit and not much else. Couldn't really find a whole lot about them, though. Apparently, according to Wikipedia, they did launch a contest through EGM Magazine with the release of Qbert 3, uh, in which they presented people with Qbert trivia questions, and people could write the answers in and possibly win a SNES with copies of Qbert 3 and Strike Gunner STG, which was also made by NTV. And I believe that this game itself was developed by Realtime Associates, is that correct? I believe so. There's a few different developers, depending on what website you go to, to look it up. But I will say D- David Warhol of Realtime Associates is credited as the main designer and developer, so okay. that is probably the most correct. Um, Ironwind Software is also listed as a developer, maybe a subcontractor of some sort. I don't know. Okay. So, Qbert 3. What can you really say about it? Well, it's Qbert. That's certainly true. 
Qbert is in it. Just to describe a little bit about how Qbert works, because uh, I don't think we really did that. Qbert is a game played on a big isometric stack of cubes. You control Qbert, who can jump in one of four directions to any adjacent cube that is above or below him. Warren in that piece on CoinOp actually says people were expecting to be able to move him from side to side and couldn't, were frustrated about it, but he stuck to his guns on it. Well, I mean, it certainly does create a distinctive sort of movement. Every time Qbert jumps onto a new square, it changes the color of the square. And your goal is essentially to change all of the squares to the kind of final color they can go to. Uh, Sometimes that means jumping on them once. Sometimes that means jumping on them a few times to change it to like a third color. You are also avoiding uh, enemies that spawn at various places uh, all around the map and will be jumping. Do do the, the enemies jump at random or is it always in a set pattern? I think with most of the enemies, it's in a, a specific pattern. Like I think there's a snake enemy that will follow you, which which sometimes means like if you jump onto one of the platforms that will sort of lift you off the pyramid and back to the top, like it'll sometimes actually like jump off of the pyramid entirely, sort of like, uh-huh. You can kind of trick it into into jumping to its death, as, as it were. So there's there's the snake. There's balls of a couple of different sizes that will kind of spawn in and bounce down the pyramid. There is a little kind of goblin guy that will jump around and change the colors back to what they were originally. You know, basically, that's the game. You're going through various maps. Uh, in Cubert 3, it's it's a number of different layouts. Uh, the, the skin that's on the tile changes uh, with each level. There's a lot of these levels. Yeah, I want to say I think there are 80 of them. I think there are 80 screens, 80 little play fields to... To figure out if you're at all familiar with Cuber, this game really does play about how you'd expect it to. The thing that I think really uh, is a problem for me, at least with this game, is that I think it is exceptionally ugly. You know, everything has a very sort of glossy, pre-rendered look to it, and there are these kind of shimmering or or moving background effects that, once again, also change from level to level. And my goodness, they are just horrendously ugly to me i don't know what you thought but i it was genuinely kind of hard for me to look at this game for more than like a few minutes because i was just so sort of nauseated by the backgrounds and the the character art i i definitely see where you're coming from i didn't think they were quite as ugly as i think you did i i kind of found them sort of neat and trippy in some ways i mean i'm sure that's what they were going for it just did not land that way for me at all yeah well there were definitely times where i was even thinking like okay now you're just assaulting my eyeballs this is too much yeah there's like a, a lot of movement in the backgrounds the game over screen like has like all these rotating cubes going back and forth and it's uh-huh. there are times where i thought it was a cool effect and and honestly like i could conceive of certain times in which i might seek out this sort of style maybe if i were uh-huh. indulging in some sorts of substances that would make me yeah, receptive sure. to this more trippy and colorful art style but yeah i can definitely see where it goes overboard and is sometimes just way too much but i feel like with the graphics at least they were just throwing everything out there and they were really trying something but the gameplay i just i i wasn't 
too enamored with. No, me either. I looked up some videos of like original arcade Qbert just to compare this to. And one thing that did really strike me, aside from the fact that for one thing, original Qbert didn't do different level layouts like this one does, as far as I could tell, is that there were fewer hazards and fewer enemies on screen. And I think that's probably better for this because one of the things that I had a real problem with in this game was that I felt like the the levels were just cluttered with things that could kill me. And, you know, it just felt really cramped to the point where, like, I couldn't really uh, evade things effectively without a lot of practice and a lot of muscle memory for Qbert's kind of weird controls that I just didn't have. Yeah, like, I do appreciate that they have in the options menu a very good visual of how the controls are going to work and options to change them. Uh-huh. Uh, I think they did a really great job where like, a game with a similar control scheme like Kablooey utterly failed at that. I agree, yeah. At least they were trying to present that in a good way. But yeah, I still just don't like it. I, it's just so hard for me to wrap my brain around this sort of diagonal movement on a D-pad with just up, down, left, and right. I don't know why. Like, I feel like it's my fault. Like, I should be able to do this. But for some reason, it's just... It's like with the baseball thing where I've got to throw to, like, say, first base, but first base is right below me, but I still need to push right on the D-pad. Like, I just – I can't do – I can't make myself do it. I don't know why. I know. I'm the same way. I had a real problem with that. Even after I'd played this game for a while, I kept jumping off the side of the level just because I would momentarily lose track of what direction I needed to push to make him go in the direction I wanted to. And I'd just be like, okay, well, that one, that one's done. The original Cuber was very novel when it came out. But this doesn't feel like it's doing anything different from that, and it's not a thing I enjoy particularly. I feel like this sort of upgraded version of Cuber needed something else to really justify the three on the end of that. Like, in a way, this almost just feels like they should have called it Super Cubert because it just feels like Cubert, but with few extras because it's on the Super Nintendo, whereas... I don't know, like maybe some sort of power-up that you could get or, or an attack that Qbert can do to kind of just mix things up a little bit. I don't know. This game yeah. needs something else. Yeah, I agree. That's pretty much where I came away from it thinking that, you know, yeah, there's just there, – there's not – enough here to justify this game existing as it does and i'll be honest i do not know a whole lot about the original cubert like i know that this game has those little discs flying on the side from my looking at footage of original cubert those were actually in that game too okay so i that's what i was wondering because it seemed like if anything could have been like a new mechanic it would have been that but i guess that isn't the case either as far as i can tell the big thing that's different in this game versus original cubert is that every level in the original cubert was just the, the starting pyramid Mm -hmm. with different enemies on it and like needing you to jump on the cubes a different number of times okay whereas this game has very different sort of maps for 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 the different levels so that that to me seems like it's the main thing they changed here i will say visually one thing i do like about this game is the sort of creativity around what the cubes actually are yeah that's kind of good 
Sometimes they're like little gift-wrapped presents that change color when you jump on them. Sometimes they're teeth that get cavities when you jump on them, which is weird. <laughs> but I, I appreciated that they were thinking about the whole concept of jumping on these cubes and trying to be a lot more creative with it. I thought that was neat. And uh, this doesn't have anything to do with like my, my opinions on the game itself. But uh, boy, this game has the ugliest title screen I think I've seen on any Super Nintendo game. Yeah, I mean, again, it's one of those things where it's like, well, they just they they went for it. Um, but they did go for it. Uh, but what they went for it, it's just tacky. Like the Q in Cubert has like an American flag pattern on it for some reason. And then yeah, like the letters are all just kind of bouncing and vibrating. And I don't know, it's like a like a word art fever dream. That middle schooler had to give a PowerPoint presentation, and they were going to use <laughs> all the word arts. Darn it! That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> say about this one or do you think we're ready to uh put it on the list i think i'm ready to put it on the list i don't have anything else to to really add to our discussion here all right so we already talked about kablooey a little bit and i think there's a lot of parallels you can draw here between it and kablooey yes but i think this game is considerably better than kablooey i agree with that i mean i think Qbert, as much as i don't generally love the way it controls i think it's a, a very solid game design that holds up better than kablooey does for sure i also think like with kablooey there's maybe less reason for it to have been in that sort of tilted isometric perspective totally yeah you can't justify that as much as you can with cubert which you know started out that way so that is number 82. Right above it at 81, we've got Gary Kitchen's Super Battle Tank. I would probably play this again before I'd play Super Battle Tank. I would too. Yeah, I think that's very true. So let's jump up to number 79, which is Faceball 2000. What do you think of okay. that matchup? Well, I think Faceball 2000 is probably more immediately playable than this game for me, but it's a lot more boring in the sense that like, there's just so little to it, especially given that... Baseball 2000 strips out the like kind of main multiplayer component that was a big draw in other versions of that game. You know, I think that even if I find Kubert kind of frustrating, there's more to it than Baseball 2000 seems to have. So above Baseball 2000, we've got Clue at 78. Once again, more playable, um, pretty big disparity in how effective I think the aesthetics are. Um, I think Clue is just a much better looking game, but I don't really know if that's enough. I think, I don't know, what do you think about this game versus Bart's Nightmare at number 77? Bart's Nightmare is kind of a nightmare to play in a lot of respects, but they nail that art style so well. I, I might have enjoyed the better parts of Bart's Nightmare more than I enjoyed my experience playing Qbert 3. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Yeah, I'm kind of wanting to say I think by the skin of its teeth, I think this one just falls below Bart's Nightmare. I don't think it's quite as good. That does mean that like Clue is sort of the ultimate arbiter here like does this go above or below clue i think probably it should go above clue just because i think that if you can get good enough at playing cubert to make progress with it you'll probably get more out of it than you would out of clue i mean it definitely cubert 3 is a better execution of its source material if you like cubert you will probably like cubert 3 whereas if you like clue the board game you probably won't like Clue the video game because of how they mess up the mechanics in the context of bringing it to a video game console. So maybe on that criteria alone, 
Qbert 3 belongs above Clue. Yeah, I'm, I feel pretty good about putting it there. In between Bart's Nightmare and Clue, then. So this will be our new number 78? Yeah. All right. The bracket from, like, 70 to 80 has ended up kind of a... It's kind of a weird one, because it's ended up being the place where, like, a bunch of games that are kind of okay, but not really good, have ended up. You know, we've got Wheel of Fortune and, like, several, like, board game or other kind of game adaptations. You know, Super Batter Up, Clue, and The Chess Master are all in there. It's interesting how much of an identity this chunk of the list has. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's game number 99, so I guess that means it's time to talk about game number 100. That's right. And that is Space Megaforce. Hot damn, this game is awesome. <laughs> Guys. Yeah, this game is so good. This game is... I don't want to bury the lead here. This game is really good. You know, we've talked about a lot of shooters on this show. I think, like, something in the neighborhood of, like, 13 shooters, depending on how you're kind of counting them. Yeah. Some of them have been pretty good. Some of them have been really bad. Most of them have just kind of been eh, though, to the point where, yeah. like, it's just frustrating talking about them, and I kind of dread having to play another shooter. But finally, we have another shooter that really makes me want to keep going and want to say, mm-hmm. yeah, we're definitely going to still play all the shooters, too, because every now and then we find a gem like this. This game is so much fun. But before we get to, into it, I guess we should probably talk a little bit about the history and whatnot. Let's uh, let's do that. This game was made by Compile. Uh, Compile is a Japanese developer with an extensive gamography that spans decades. They're probably best known for the puzzle series Puyo Puyo, uh, which is a game that we will talk about more in depth when we get to Kirby's Avalanche, which uh, unfortunately won't be for quite some time, but we'll get there. <laughs> so uh, Compile started life under the name Programmers 3, and their first game was called AE, which was a Space Invader clone with some pretty impressive, for 1982 anyway, background elements. AE was published by Broderbund and released on the Atari 8-bit architecture in Apple II. According to Moby Games, it also came out on the Commodore VIC-20, though Wikipedia claims it was actually the Commodore 64. I don't know which one of those is actually correct. I think I've seen video of it running on a VIC-20, so, but I don't know, maybe it came out on both. Anyway, Compile developed many games, mostly for the MSX and the Sega Master System and the NES. Their gamography seems to be a healthy mix of ports of other companies' games and original titles. Uh, One of their early games released on MSX and the NES was the vertically scrolling shooter called Xanak. While the NES had its share of shooters as well, Xanak, kind of like Space Megaforce now in comparison with all the SNES shooters, uh... Had a sense of speed and a varied power-up system that set it apart from a lot of the competition. So uh, Compile would kind of make scrolling shooters one of their tent poles, and they'd make a lot of other shooters in a similar mold as that, like uh, Gunnack and Zevius and Alest, or Aleste? I don't know how that's supposed to be pronounced, actually. I've been saying Aleste in my head, but I don't know. Yeah, I've been saying a lest in my head, but uh, whatever it is. Listen to your heart, folks. Yeah. But talking about a lest brings us right to Space Megaforce, or Super Alest, as it's known outside the U.S. This was actually an Alest game. It just had uh, some of the sort of Alest or Aleste aspects of it scrubbed out to kind of turn it into a more generic shooter, as far as the main character is concerned, anyway. We'll be right back. 
also, I guess I, before we get into the gameplay, uh, this was published by Toho, which is the uh, Japanese film company that created Godzilla. I guess this is just, this is one of those things where Toho, as a large media company in Japan, just like had their finger in everything, probably, right? Yeah, I mean, it is strange because their game output as a developer on occasion and as a publisher is pretty sporadic. Like, they've had things come out under their name spanning decades, but there isn't like just a ton of stuff out there. It's, it's not consistent. They're kind of few and far between. It's a really strange gamography that they've got for themselves. But uh, yeah, Toho is probably best known as the huge movie studio in Japan or the huge movie company in Japan. Other than uh, the kaiju monster movies that they put out, they are also known for producing and uh, putting out all movies from legendary directors like Akira Kurosawa. And they've also done numerous television productions and anime features. It, they've even produced uh, some of the films, if not most or all of the films, by Studio Ghibli. So, yeah, they're pretty well known. And it's just strange that... Um, they have this random smattering of games. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Some of the games, uh, to their credit, <laughs> include... The infamous NES game, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. <laughs> yeah, wow, that's a contrast, huh? Yeah, the quality is also really across the board, too. So it's it's very strange, and it's kind of fitting in a episode where we're bringing up, it just feels like all sorts of random things from random points in history and places, but uh, there you go. That's, <laughs> that's the creation of yeah. Space Megaforce, and... Now, let's talk about how awesome this game is. Yes, let's please. Uh, so this is a vertically scrolling shooter. We have played a few of those. We've played fewer of those than we have uh, horizontally scrolling shooters, but nothing else that we've played uh, as a, a vertically scrolling shooter even remotely compares to this one, I think. Yeah, this is head and shoulders above the rest, but I would say this might even be... Well, I mean, we'll get there. Yeah, but... we'll get there, but I think I'm hearing what you're saying there. The, the things that will grab you immediately about this game is it is very attractive to look at. It has lots of really varied enemy sprites it moves really well the levels have a lot of not even really obstacles because this game's a lot fairer than a lot of games uh, of its type where we're running into obstacles and the levels won't instantly kill you but they are things that you have to maneuver around and through so that that is a, a really striking thing about this game but the other thing that's really striking is as you alluded to before the power-up system yeah, so right out of the gate, when you start the game, you've got a cool spread shot. You've got bullets that are going off in three different directions. You can also change firing modes with that weapon so that you're firing some behind you or to the side of you. Uh, it's a very versatile weapon, and this is just your default weapon. There are seven other weapons that you can grab, each with their own abilities and sub-weapon modes, and then all of them can be powered up by gathering these orange and green chips or whatever you want to call them orbs maybe i don't know they look like they look like little little jewel egg things yeah so they power up your weapons and just give you all sorts of new options and firing modes and holy crap some of these weapons just made me feel like just an instrument of death in the best way possible <laughs> there's a power yeah. shot that you charge up and it just launches this beam out of your ship. And the more you power it up, the more beams you're actually firing side by side until I think you have like six beams coming out of your ship. Like a whole third of the screen is just covered up by your weapon fire. Yeah, it's it's wild. And that's not even the only weapon that does stuff like that. The laser weapon sends different beams out of your ship at, at different angles, kind of move and turn at right angles and turn again. They're just ends up being 
making tons of those when you power that up. There's a weapon that fires in whatever direction you're moving. They're all fun to use, which is the thing that's really impressive. Like, they're all so much fun. And you get tons of them. Like, I think that it's possible to change weapons every, like, 20 seconds or so in this game, because they just keep dropping at such a high rate. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I actually felt encouraged a lot of the time to keep picking up different weapons just because, oh, I want to see what this does now. Oh, I want to see what this does now. Or, you know what, this was fun, but I just want to try something different for a little while. It's so great. The fact that it keeps giving you power-ups just changes your weapon. It doesn't necessarily make you more powerful. That's what the little orange and green eggs are for. But even when you do get super powered up, the game doesn't feel too easy. Uh, even given all of the mercy mechanics, I'll call them, the, the game gives you, like what you mentioned, not getting instantly destroyed when you bump into walls or giving you extra lives that will actually let you respawn right from where you died and generous checkpointing system from when you do have to backtrack. This might be like the most perfect shooter we've played. You never feel like you're underpowered or overpowered. Everything's always like kind of exciting and surprising because you're changing weapons so often and the levels are throwing so many different things at you. A lot of different, very creative things done with the levels themselves even. And you're able to actually appreciate those because it never feels like you're in that death spiral, even if you die, like what we've talked about with so many other games. Uh, of this of this type. Something that I really like about this game that I don't think I've experienced in any other shooter that we've played thus far is the sense of exploration. Because you don't just die the minute you hit a wall, this game actually encourages you to sort of hug the walls of a level and find like little nooks and crannies where yeah. it's squirreling away power-ups and things like that. It's really unlike anything I've ever seen in this kind of game where I felt like, okay, I'm going to go see what's over there in this little corner. Like that's never something I'd do in most shooters like this, because I know the minute I do that, I'm going to hit the wall, I'm going to die, and I'm going to have to restart the level. It encourages that kind of exploration. And that really makes you wonder, like, why hasn't every other shooting game up to this point done these (laughs) sorts of things? Why does it punish you for wanting to explore? Why do they punish you for continuing to play and starting back up after you die by completely removing all of your powers and making it really hard to build them back up. This game shows you that you don't have to do that to the player and can still make a good, challenging game. No, I think it's phenomenal. And I think that all of that stuff is is really complemented by some of the cool technical things this game does as well. There's a great thing, like the entire concept of the second level of this game, for example, is just a really neat thing where I suppose you're in space And there's a kind of tiny object in the background that slowly gets bigger and bigger until it reveals itself to be this big weapons platform. And then the remainder of the level, once that comes up to kind of the foreground layer, is you kind of going around this weapons platform and fighting different parts of it. And it just feels so grand in scale. And it's conveyed so well by the game's graphics and the way this thing is paced that it just really, really works. And that's awesome. That is the kind of thing I love to see in a game of this type. And I think it's, it's, great that the game is so fun that it doesn't feel like you're kind of struggling through it to get to those cool technical moments where it does something really impressive and exciting. Yeah, that second level just blew me away. When I saw that thing in the background, I was just thinking like, 
huh, how much, how much bigger is that thing going to get before this is all over? And then it just, it becomes the stage basically. And then it keeps zooming back out and zooming back in, but rotating and taking you to different parts of that weapons platform as you play through the level. Even now, that was still really, really impressive. It might be some of the smoothest sprite scaling I've seen in any game so far. It, it takes advantage of the mode 7. I'm not even sure I think Castlevania 4 did it quite as smoothly as this game does. This is a great game. I I really have nothing negative to say about it, honestly. I just think it's great, and I'm so impressed with it. And for how how much it has done with a format that we've seen so much of on the system so far. But Never like this. I think it's going to be hard for any other shooter to top this one. And it, it, I almost worry that this is going to spoil us now on shooters because <laughs> now this is the one we're going to be measuring the rest of them up against. Now this is the one we're going to be comparing everything to. Yeah, yeah and right. a lot of things are just not going to come close to this, I, I worry. There's a few other things that I, I think are neat about this game. There's a short mode in which you can just kind of go through sort of like segments of other levels, I think is what they're doing. And uh-huh. it almost just kind of giving you a little taste of what the game is like. And I, I thought that was a really neat concept of just like a cool way of showing off the game in this sort of abbreviated form for people wanting to check it out. I, I thought that was a really neat little feature. And it also has a really strange feature called break time, where you just see some of those scaling sprites in action, where you can zoom in and out and kind of see a number of them. It's it's strange. It is, you know, still a, a very impressive demonstration of what they do with the Mode 7. Just wish that you didn't have to reset the game to get out of it, but it's... I don't know what to think of that one, but uh, it's kind of cool that it's there. Yeah, really the only criticism I can say of this game is that I wish that they'd had the courage to just leave in the Alest stuff and make for more visually appealing uh, cutscenes, I guess. But even that's not No, I mean, I think the other thing that this game does apparently miss from the Japanese Super Alest version uh, is that apparently that game had different endings depending on what difficulty setting you played the game on. And uh, this one, they that, because they basically stripped out the kind of original story for this, this game doesn't have that. But at the same time, that's like a thing where like, I kind of wish that was there. So it would be the complete package. But I don't think it really loses much by not having that. We didn't mention the music, but that is also great. It's it's just good. It's just really, really good. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's definitely not my favorite soundtrack on the SNES thus far, but it gets the job done. It's real good. No, me either, but it's it's. Yeah, but it's it, everything fits the levels really well, and I, I would say it's extremely appropriate music for this game. I think this game's great, and I don't guess I really have much else to say about it, but uh, I guess we need to do the hard work now of figuring out where exactly to put this on our list. Well, do you think it'll be difficult? Because, I mean, I, I'm i not sure it will be that difficult. I mean, I, I think it goes without saying that this is going high up on the list. Give me a drop zone here, I guess. Where do you think we should start trying to find a place for this? Well, I think the obvious place to start would be at our highest ranked shooter at this point, which is UN Squadron at number eight. And I think this is more fun than UN Squadron, to be honest with you. I agree with that. Uh, I like UN Squadron a great deal. I think it's an extremely cool game. But I do think that 
this game that Space Megaforce really is more fun and more generally kind of surprising and superbly put together than than UN Squadron even. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so too. And then above UN Squadron, we have Act Racer at number seven. And I think I like this more than Act Razor. I think I do too. I think it's more, it's a lot more replayable than Act Razor, I think I would say. Yeah, 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 I think so too. I mean, you know, as much as I loved Act Razor in my time with it, I mean, I played through you, it. You really did kind of play through it. And then the thing that Act Razor has that I guess would be maybe the most comparable to this game is Act Razor's um, professional mode, which is just the side scrolling stages from Act Razor, which you can just sort of play through as an action game. But I think if you were going to do that, you would find a quite good side-scrolling action game versus, in this case, an exceptionally good vertically scrolling shooter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I will just say, I think if you're only playing the platform games in ActRaiser, you're doing it wrong, but that's just me. I, I agree. I agree. But yeah, but I, I, I do think, though, that I, I think this, this edges out ActRaiser. I think this is better. And then we've got TMNT4 Turtles in Time at number six. And this is where... This is trickier. Yeah, because for one thing, that game is exceptionally well put together as well. I mean, I think all of the games in our top 10 are, but Turtles in Time really does have phenomenal graphics and music. And uh, it is also a co-op game, which gives you a different kind of fun than you can have with Space Megaforce. So yeah, it's it's tough. This one is a tougher comparison. Yeah, I mean, Turtles in Time does do some cool Mode 7 stuff as well. And just the the fact that it has the co-op just makes it so much more fun to play with a friend. And mm, this one's really, really tough. And I I don't think I'm quite prepared to put space megaforce above turtles in time but i i will hear an argument if you feel otherwise i don't feel like i want to make that argument honestly like i think that as i lay out kind of everything that both games have going for them i do think probably turtles in time is the stopping point for space megaforce just because um of the stuff we mentioned and i you know i think it is no shame uh to be slightly less good than turtles in time yeah yeah i mean heck everything in the top 20 is a phenomenal game really yeah I mean, absolutely uh it's really true i am really comfortable saying it's the best shooter we've played so far and i would recommend it to anybody that wants a, an arcade game experience at home the fact that turtles in time is also sort of the definitive version of that game like the fact that that game kind of added stuff that isn't even in the arcade version and made it work really well in the Super Nintendo game does kind of just barely edge out Space Megaforce for me. Yeah, yeah, but Space Megaforce is the kind of game that I would recommend even to people who don't normally like shooters. Like, play this anyway, you will probably have fun. That feels like a great place to put it. Space Megaforce as our new number seven game, cracking the top ten, so impressive. And I think that's a great place to end our first hundred games on the system. Yeah, 100 games from, from Super Mario World at the top to Pit Fighter at number 100. So let, let me just uh, <laughs> go through the top 10 here, I guess. So we got Top Gear yeah. at number 10. Number 9, we got UN Squadron. 8 is uh, Act Racer. 7 is Space Megaforce. 6 is Turtles in Time. 5 is Final Fantasy 2. 4 is Super Castlevania 4. 3 is The Legend of Zelda Link to the Past. 2 is Street Fighter 2. And 1 is Super Mario world yeah that's a great list of games yeah i'm just kind of looking through the list here so we got you know like quarter of the way down we got 25 we got ncaa basketball number 50 
Who's uh, let's see, what is just in the center right now? It's Arcana. Interesting. That is interesting. It was uh, John Madden football for a long time. Remember that? The list kept moving around just barely to the point where that stayed right in the center. Uh, where is old John Madden at this point? Uh, 45, so still not too far from the center. <laughs> still not too far from the center, but, uh, you know, staying in the top 50. Good job. And then at uh, number 75, we've got World League Soccer. Oh, do we want to go down the, the, the bottom 10? Oh, I think we should. Let's look directly into the eye of hell right here and yeah. uh, and see what we've got going on in the bottom the bottom 10. All right. So some of these might be a little controversial. I don't know. Number 91, we've got David Crane's Amazing Tennis. 92 is WWF Super WrestleMania. 93 is Bill Lane Beer's Combat Basketball. 94 is Ultraman Towards the Future. <laughs> 95 is Earth Defense Force. Number 96 is Home Alone. Number 97 is RPM Racing. Number 98 is RoboCop 3. 99 is The Rocketeer. And 100 is Pit Fighter. Wow, the Rocketeer is still second from last. I didn't. I, I completely yeah. forgot that that was still yeah. that far down there. It's a really bad game. I mean, you know, we always say Pit Fighter is probably the floor mm-hmm. for Super Nintendo games, at least so far. But it's going to be really hard for something to be worse than the Rocketeer as well. I know we've played some great licensed games uh, in our in our time with the system so far, but... Looking at this list, you can kind of see where the bad reputation for licensed games has come from. There are there are a lot of those uh, in the bottom the bottom reaches of our list here. Yeah, I mean the the bottom quadrant here. I mean you've got what you got Bart's Nightmare in there. You've got uh, two Home Alone games, but you know there's actually a lot fewer in that last quadrant than I would have expected. You know, because like then you've also got stuff like. Krusty's Funhouse, all the way up at number 48. You know, that that's not bad. No, that's not bad. And I mean, you go further up, you got The Addams Family, you've got Hook, which is genuinely a great game. Yeah. So, you know, there are games that defy that, that sort of licensed game stigma pretty profoundly, but... There are also some some of the absolute worst games so far have been licensed games. So uh, I guess like everything else, licensed games can can be whatever they make of them. So so as we as we go into the next 100 games on this list, what is your hope for, you know, like the next 100 games you think? Like what what's something you really want to see? So one thing I really hope to see is uh a baseball game that finally cracks the code and makes it it, it figures out a way to make that sport fun yes. <laughs> in a video game. That would be fantastic. I would like to see some more traditional turn-based Japanese RPGs that are are really good. Uh, I know those are coming, but I don't know exactly when. And, you know, I mean, if you look at this list, really kind of the only real, like, standout uh, sort of traditional Japanese RPG we've had so far uh, is actually Final Fantasy II. Yeah. You know, we've had other ones that do some different stuff. I mean, obviously, uh, East 3 is a, is a really good game. There are some interesting experiments like, like Arcana, but I want to see the point where that genre sort of comes into full flower on the Super Nintendo. What about you? What, what are you hoping to see? Well, one thing I'm hoping that doesn't go away, though I, I fear it probably is going to to some extent, is those fun little experiments that, you know, maybe aren't fantastic, but it's cool to see somebody doing something different on the system, like with yeah. Populous and Draken, for example, which, you know, we yeah, still got sure. ranked pretty high, but even though they're not fantastic games, they're, they're very different, and I don't think we're going to see anything much like them, but I, I do hope we still see our fair share of weird stuff come out for the system. And the other thing I would actually kind of like to see is something that 
we actually definitively can say, oh, this is better than Super Mario World. Like something that we yeah. don't have to hem and haw about and, and ultimately put right below it like we have with Street Fighter 2 and The Legend of Zelda. Um, and I guess yeah. Super Castlevania to, us, to an extent. Oh, actually, Final Fantasy 2 was the first that we really had to. The, that was the one where the discussion of it derailed an episode, basically. That's right, yeah. <laughs> you know, because uh, we just didn't know what to do. Yeah, I agree with you on both of those counts. I do want to still see interesting weird experimental stuff stuff you may not even remotely associate with being the kind of games that you would see on the super nintendo and yeah i hope we find something that just absolutely knocks it out of the park to such park to such an extent that we we can definitively uh give it the number one spot over super mario world yeah i think that would be cool but we will see if that happens so here's to uh, 100 games on the list and hopefully 100 more mm-hmm. and and 100 more after that and after that and you know on up until we have all 700 and whatever on here yeah so in the next episode we're gonna have some guests lined up and we're just gonna talk about the list as it is right now and uh maybe they'll offer some alternate arguments for why a position on the list should get changed and you know we'll we'll just We'll just have some fun conversation. Don't worry. We're not we're not giving up at 100. We are going to boldly keep going through the Super Nintendo library until we have reached the end. Um, I, I forget which game is actually the last one that came out, but uh, we, we will get there someday, years from now. We will get there someday, yeah. Um, and hey, uh, the list might just keep getting longer and longer uh, because, uh, you know, it weirdly several several fairly high profile super nintendo games have come out in the last couple of years so that is true like who knows maybe more games will come out for the super nintendo between now and when we you know finish the the official licensed games list although even Star Fox 2 i guess kind of came out in the last few years didn't it yeah, and that was an official <laughs> licensed. That's that's an Nintendo actual game. new Nintendo game that came out for the Super Nintendo finally uh, after sitting on a shelf for for twenty years. Hey, okay, so you know what? So to any budding game developers out there, here's our challenge for you: go out there and learn assembly language or uh, whatever these games are built on, and, and make new games for us to review. <laughs> I'd be lying if I said I hadn't actually looked into that, but I, I think that I think assembly language is so outside my wheelhouse, I don't even know if, if that's something I could do. That's that's a pretty daunting thing, frankly. So. <laughs> anyway, folks, that is going to do it for today. Thank you all so much to all of you who've been listening since the beginning and, and have joined us for all these hundred games. And, and to those of you who are just joining us for the first time, feel free to head over to honestpiranha.com. You can kind of follow along, uh, start from the beginning, and you can watch the list grow in real time. We've actually got a thing on the website where... On each episode, just click show list. You will see what the list looked like as of that episode. Yeah, if you haven't listened to our other episodes, please go back, start at the beginning, and listen all the way through. Or just go through and pick an episode where we discuss a game that you are personally interested in. That's a great way to jump on as well. Uh, I believe this is now our 30th episode of the show, so we've got kind of a backlog for you to to look through if uh, if you're new to it. We thank you very much, whether this is your first episode or your 30th one, for sticking with us, and uh, we are excited to go towards the future like Ultraman with you <laughs> uh, into our next 100 games and beyond and beyond and beyond. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. So, Uh, Until next time, folks, thank you all so much for listening. As always, I am Steampunk Link. 
I am Emmy Zero. Play it loud. Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoaxe, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoaxe.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X-E dot com.